welcome to the Psych Central podcast, where each episode features guest experts discussing psychology and mental health in everyday, plain language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central podcast. I'm here with senior police officer Rebecca Skillern to talk about, well, really, police officers being first responders for people who are in crisis because of mental illness. We're also going to cover the CIT program, which is Crisis Intervention Team. Rebecca, you are both a social worker and a police officer in Houston. Is that correct? Almost. I'm a police officer and I'm a licensed professional counselor and supervisor. That is unusual. Is that is that correct? Usually you're one or the other, not not a combo deal. Correct. I've been referred to by some of my peers as a unicorn uh, because I'm kind of odd for having both the policing and the mental health side. Let's talk about that for a moment because it, you know, kind of one of the first questions that I I want to ask, and uh, you of course are not responsible for policing across the entire United States, but to many people, hearing that police officers are first responders to medical conditions, it sounds funny. It's almost like saying that firefighters should show up when there's a robbery. Can you sort of explain how we got here and the logic behind that? It's oftentimes with medical emergencies that involve someone who's having a mental health crisis in a sense that they want to hurt themselves or they want to hurt someone else. In many states, but specifically in Texas, which I can't speak for because I am in Texas, in many states, only a police officer or a peace officer can take someone into custody and detain them against their will and get them in for emergency evaluation for stabilization for a mental health issue. If police officers or peace officers are the only ones who can do that, then it makes perfectly good sense that when someone goes into crisis and needs that, that a peace officer is the one to do that. The other piece of that being is that when we transport, if we transport in a patrol vehicle that has the vehicle with the locked doors in the back that they can't unlock, to keep them from being able to jump out and harm themselves. In that sense, it it does make sense. Where it doesn't make sense is that we're not mental health providers and we're not traditionally trained to respond to mental health issues. And that's where there seems to be a lot of confusion. But when people are in crisis, their family members are contacting 911. And when 911 is contacted, they are sending police and ambulance typically together. Police have to arrive on scene and render the scene safe before anybody else can approach. In that regard, it makes good sense, but it doesn't make good sense in that we haven't traditionally included crisis intervention training in policing, and that's something that's only come on within the last few decades. Those are all really good points, and I think that they're points that the average person doesn't think about because, you know, we're sort of trained to look at police officers as crime fighters. That that That's really sort of the information that society has. You know, it's cops and robbers. It's not cops and mentally ill people. But that's actually not the role of police officers. You're, you're not crime fighters. Your job is, is much bigger than that. Can you talk about that for a moment? We are crime fighters. We do enforce the law. But To go beyond that, we are also bound by the idea of wanting to protect and serve. We take an oath to protect and serve our communities, and that comes in many different forms and fashions. It includes, of course, seeking out people who are doing harm to others, you know, in a malicious way, like the robberies and assaults and things of that nature, you know, the real criminal activity. 
protecting and serving also means protecting people from themselves when the time comes, if, if people want to do harm to themselves, or because of some kind of destabilization in what's going on in their world, maybe doing harm to others. So we do intervene in those situations as well, because it's, the safety issues go well beyond just protecting people from malicious encounters from other people. And we want to talk about specifically what Texas is doing and other states to help people like Gabe Howard, you know, people who live with severe and persistent mental illness and have been in crisis, make sure that we get the care that we need. Because as you pointed out, a lot of police officers aren't trained and Houston's looking to fix that and is fixing it. We are certainly trying. We are not alone in that effort. We have you know, agencies all across the state and all across the nation. We have an international association as well, where we are trying to get officers better prepared to deal with these situations because it is something we are encountering and we are encountering it more and more as time goes on. I don't have an answer as to why that happened, but it's happening. And we have to prepare both our officers who are responding to those situations as well as our community members so that they better know how to give the information needed so that we can all respond in a safer, more humane way to people who need help. So a concerned person calls 911 because somebody is having a mental health crisis or they suspect that somebody is having a mental health crisis. 911 responds by sending out a police officer. So now the police officer is on the scene. What's the next thing that happens? Well, it varies from one situation to another. The first thing you have to take into account is anyone's safety at risk. I mean, do you have other people who are at risk of being harmed? Are the officers at risk of being harmed? Is the individual at risk of being harmed? And it can vary from one situation to another. One person might be standing in the middle of the street preaching and, you know, causing a traffic hazard with no weapons or anything like that. Or another person might be in a room with a knife in their hand. So it depends on the situation. And what we try to do is prepare officers to first assess a scene, take a quick snapshot of what's going on, get all the information you can while you're en route, take a a snapshot when you arrive on scene to see is anybody's safety being jeopardized. If so, they, they have to act immediately. If not, We teach them to try to utilize their verbal de-escalation skills and active listening to establish rapport with the individual, find out what's going on to get them to talk, kind of assess what the immediate crisis is and how they can intervene in that immediate crisis, then get the person into appropriate treatment. What are some things that you would say or or do to de-escalate? And I do understand that there's probably no magic words or we would just send out an email to all police officers and this problem would be resolved. Right. Well, first off, in any situation involving someone in crisis, if possible, we want at least two officers present. Again, it's a safety issue. We only want one of them to be doing the talking because we don't want to have too many people talking and the person to get further confused or further upset, but we try to have at least two officers respond to a situation like that so that they have backup, support, and someone who can be watching for the other things while they're actually trying to engage the individual. You start by trying to establish a rapport, get the person's name, use the person's name in the conversation, you know, introduce yourself, lower the decibel levels, try to get their attention by lowering your voice. Research actually shows that if you want someone's attention, you can get it better by lowering your voice than you can by raising your voice. Find out what's bothering them. 
you know, let them vent, let them talk about what's going on, let them get some of their frustrations out. We also find that oftentimes the family members being in the room with the individual escalates the situation rather than de-escalates it. So that's one of the reasons we try to get other people out of the picture so that we can have that engagement with the individual. We work with them to try to establish that rapport, to gain compliance, to try to bring them down, to let them know that we're there to help them. We don't want to hurt them. We want to get them into help so that they're not feeling the pain that they're feeling at that time or that they can better cope with what they're dealing with. It's not always easy. We want officers to be empathetic and understanding. At the same time, we want them to stay safe and to keep the people around them safe. Part of how we do that is by training our officers and educating them about mental illnesses and what some of those episodes might look like. Because when you have someone who's bipolar, sometimes they will go into crisis and be throwing things and kind of raging, being very upset at the drop of a hat and Sometimes just letting them know that you're there to help them, that you want to get them the help that they need to be more in control, to feel more in control of what they're having to live with. De-escalation becomes a lot harder if the person you're trying to de-escalate is holding a weapon. What's the process there? Well, again, every situation is going to have its own kind of unique circumstance. But if you have someone who's holding a weapon that officers are trained to use cover and concealment to the best of their advantage. If they have someone who's holding a knife and that person is the only person they risk hurting is themselves, then we are looking at more and more, we're looking at tactical disengagement. If the only person they can hurt is themselves, we're going to back off. We're going to put more distance between them and us. We're going to be ready. We're going to be paying attention. We're also going to be verbalizing specific commands to lower the weapon, to drop the weapon, to try to talk the person into putting the weapon down. At the same time, we have to stay very vigilant and keep our officers safe. And again, that's going to be one of those situations where we're going to want more than one officer on that scene. Obviously, when it's a call that's involving a weapon, we're going to have you know more than one officer go to a scene if possible. Depending on the kind of weapon and who is at risk of being harmed in the situation, that will dictate the response. At no point in the crisis intervention training are we telling officers that they need to put their lives at risk. We want them to engage, but within tactics, within appropriate safety standards. And so we want them to utilize their skills. At the same time, we want them to stay safe. So tactical disengagement, if you have someone who has a knife and and There's nobody else around that they can hurt. You isolate that individual into an area and you try to engage them verbally and build rapport and talk them into lowering the weapon. And that actually happens more often than people realize. It's just when it happens that way, it doesn't make the news. We're going to step away to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. We're back speaking with Rebecca Skillern, an officer from Houston, Texas, about crisis intervention training and police involvement with people with mental illness. It's hard to have this conversation about what all police officers across America are seeing. And of course, you can only speak for Houston, Texas. But but from your standpoint, 
Which call is more common? The scared, agitated mental health crisis or the I have a weapon and uh, I want to do harm to others? Because again, like you pointed out, we hear about mentally ill people with weapons all the time. But is that really the most common call that police officers get? Actually, anecdotally, I can say no. And I would say probably the statistics would support me in saying that the majority of calls we get regarding people in mental health crisis don't involve something that's going to make headline news like that. Most of the time, you know, what we're going to get is people who are feeling suicidal, you know, that someone who's in a mental health crisis to the point that their depression or their bipolar or their schizophrenia or just their basic anxiety disorders have gotten them to the point that they're feeling depressed and suicidal. Most of the time in situations like that, even if they have a weapon, what, what they're asking for is help. What they want is help. They just don't know how to get it. Those don't make the news because so many times officers engage individuals who are in crisis like that and they're able to talk with them and they're able to get them into custody and get them to appropriate locations so that they can be evaluated, stabilized, and possibly treated. Again, those aren't making the headline news all the time. Only the ones involving weapons, and particularly the ones involving weapons where things go badly. The majority of our calls are not going to be involving weapons when, when we're dealing with people in crisis. But I can, again, only say that anecdotally because I haven't actually looked at the statistics lately. But from my perspective, I would say that it's definitely, you know, the ones that people aren't going to be interested in hearing about. The statistics are very clear that the majority of the calls are are pretty mundane and, and pretty boring. Statistically, people with mental illness are much more likely to be victims than they are perpetrators. And you can kind of see why that is if you think about it for a moment. The majority of people with mental illness, you know, depression. Let, let's take, you know, major depression, for example, which, which of course is where we get suicidality you're depressed. You're, you're not really moving all that much. So it's it's really difficult to perpetrate a crime when you're unable to get out of bed. You, you are right that the media doesn't help people with mental illness in a number of ways. The big thing that a lot of people believe, and I'm asking you as a police officer and what you've seen personally, are people with mental illness more violent than the rest of the population? I would say absolutely not. I would say exactly what you said. The statistics show that people with mental illness are more likely to be victims rather than perpetrators of crime. I think more often they are taken advantage of or they are easily manipulated or they are very vulnerable to being taken advantage of or manipulated uh, and being victims of crime. You know, again, crisis makes the news. And I'm glad that somebody like you is on the front lines to say, look, It's just not true. We're not saying that it never happens. That's not the message of mental health advocates. We're saying that it's exceptionally rare. And we're saying that it can be made even more rare because of police stations and police officers like yours. Is that what you found? It is. Oftentimes when we have officers who come through the training who don't know much about mental illness, by the time they finish the the week-long training, they have a different perspective. I think that the scariest part about mental illness for most people is that they don't know it. They've not been educated about it, so they remain kind of in an ignorant position. You know, people fear schizophrenia. There were surveys done years ago that indicated that people don't want to live next to, obviously, 
child molesters and, you know, some things of that nature. But pretty close to that on the list were people who had schizophrenia because they don't understand it. And it's all about education, you know, educating them and helping them to understand that these are symptoms and, you know, this is how the person may respond. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be violent. Now, there are some situations where they might become violent, but that's really more of an exception than a rule. It doesn't happen as often as the movies would portray. I agree with you completely. I, I do CIT in Columbus, Ohio. And when I say I do CIT, I, I'm responsible for one tiny section, and that's the lived experience section. I, I'm a person who lives with mental illness, and I come in and, and speak to police officers for a couple of hours as a person who is living well with mental illness. That That's my entire job. That's my entire goal. And it's amazing how people react because the police officers who, you know, let their guards down and who are being honest, they're like, yeah, I, I didn't think mentally ill people owned houses. I I saw the car that you drove up in and I didn't I didn't know you could own a new car. Uh, you seemed well dressed. Oh, my God, you're married. And I, I love this. I, I'm not offended by this realization. I'm encouraged by this realization because when they're honest, they're like, look, all we see are people in crisis. And because there's no representation of people who are well we think that we're just spitting in the wind. Nothing good is happening. They have told me numerous times, we didn't know that our intervention could be step one to them becoming somebody like you. And and somebody like me, I'm not that great. I just, I'm just a married guy who owns a home and has a job and pays taxes. And that's, that's what we all want to be. We just want to be happy and live a life. But I think the police officers don't have a good understanding that people like me are out there because we aren't well represented. Is that what you're seeing in your ranks as well, that they just think it's a revolving door for people with mental illness? They go in, they come back, they go in, they come back, and they don't see the potential. I think sometimes, Gabe, that is how it's perceived. The reality, though, is I we have many, many, many people who are functioning well in their lives who are also living with a serious and persistent mental illness, and their only contact with the police might be you know, a traffic ticket, and they're not going to tell a police officer when they're pulled over on traffic, oh, by the way, I have bipolar. Everything's going well, but I, I have bipolar disorder as you're writing my ticket. But there's no need for that. And part of what we do in the training is we try to normalize as much as possible. One of the points that I make the very first day of the training is I tell officers, we might encounter in a crisis situation, maybe 5% of the population. 95% of the population of people with mental illness, we don't know. We don't have encounters that enlighten us to that information. The difficulty we run into, just like the difficulty we run into with the criminal element, is that 95% of people are living life and they're doing fine. It's that bottom 5% that we do respond to over and over, whether it be you know, someone who's criminal or someone who is not doing well managing their mental illness. They need our help the most. The, the people we are encountering on a regular basis, people who are chronic consumers, many people, their first experience of serious mental illness might be something that warrants a police engagement, and we might be their first entrance into the mental health system. If we know what we're looking at, if we understand symptomology and behaviors, we might be able to get them into the mental health arena quicker than they otherwise would have. 
And that's because officers more and more are being trained in crisis and crisis intervention and mental health. And they can take the person in for care rather than in for photo opportunities at a jail. <laughs> I, 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 I like the way that, that you worded that, but you're absolutely right. And I'm glad that police officers in a lot of jurisdictions across the country are starting to realize the powerful role that they play in people getting help with mental illness, because you're right. 20, 30 years ago, they, they knew it zero. Are you hopeful that these trends will continue and that it will get better and better as time moves forward? I absolutely am, Gabe. It is sad to me that we have gone so far into the criminalization of mentally ill, and we need to reverse that. We need to get people into treatment so that they stop having those encounters with law enforcement. At the same time, because of the role that we've been cast into, because people get scared when people go into rages or when they are so severely depressed that they're threatening to harm themselves or someone else, they're calling the cops. They're calling police. We respond to those situations. We need to have our officers educated so that they can stay as safe as possible and keep the people around them as safe as possible. At the same time, we need to do more on the front end within our communities to get people into treatment before they engage in activities that lead to police encounters. We spend a lot more money providing services through the criminal justice system than we would if we gave them community-based services. And, and we have to realize that if we do it on the front end before they have multiple encounters with law enforcement, it's going to make everybody happier and be much more cost-effective. I love everything that you just said there. Right. Keep in mind, Gabe, that officers are trained to use whatever force is reasonable and necessary to uh, take a person into custody when something is going wrong. At the same time, they're also trained to continually reassess their situation so that they can decrease or increase that level of force as is necessary. When they are able to detain a person and get more information and find out in that discovery, in that investigation, they begin to realize or understand that this is something that is not normal or usual for this individual, they are able to better assess the situation nowadays when they've been through the training, of course, to see if there might be something else going on. And it gives them the understanding and the information that they need to make a better call and to use appropriate discretion to divert the individual into appropriate care. Thank you so much for speaking with me on this. And I, I know this is kind of a weird thing to say, and, and maybe it's not a popular thing to say, but but throughout America, Texas is not known as a place that's light on crime. And in fact, generally the opposite is true, that Texas is tough on crime. And the very fact that you're saying, hey, look, we're, we're trying to differentiate between people who need psychiatric help and criminals so that we can get them the right help. I really hope that this is not seen as, oh, we're, we're trying to let people off the hook. You're not making excuses for people with mental illness. You're not saying, oh, because you're mentally ill, you can behave however you want and get a pass. You're saying that you want to give them the right care, the right resources, whether that be jail or psychiatric involvement or wherever that may be. The last thing that you want to do is the wrong thing. And the very last thing that you want to do is nothing. Correct. We are very strong advocates for getting people into appropriate care and treatment. If someone has committed a crime and they are fully aware that what they're doing is wrong, it does not matter if they have a mental illness or not. If they are completely cognizant that what they're doing is wrong, 
then they have to be held accountable. And, and part of helping people to improve is helping them to accept accountability for their behavior. At the same time, if they don't know what they're doing, we have to recognize that too, because you have to have intent as part of your assessment there. We want people to get appropriate care and treatment. And sometimes that appropriate care and treatment will be a hospital or a psychiatric emergency center. And sometimes they will need to go to jail. If there's a criminal nexus to it and they have culpability, then they have to be held accountable just like you or me or anybody else. At the same time, if what they need is care and treatment so that they don't commit these minor offenses, because for the most part, what we're seeing with regard to mental illness, it's minor offenses. It's not something that's going to be you know, huge and significant to the point that it requires that other level of response. If they get appropriate treatment, most of the time, you're not going to see it again. You know, if they get what they need to stabilize and feel supported in learning coping skills and educating even their family members, because oftentimes families don't know either, it helps them and we don't have to see them again. And ultimately, that's the goal, because police officers live in the community with us. They're members of the same society. They want all of us to be okay, because then their neighborhoods will be safe and okay as well. Gabe, we are one community. You know, we we live in the communities we serve oftentimes, and we want everybody to be happy and stable. I mean, we're not singing Kumbaya and sitting around a campfire together, but we, we want everybody to be able to live as productive a life as possible. Protecting and serving is why officers join departments and agencies across the country. You know, it's not because we want to, you know, fight and, you know, chase chasing gun battles type thing. It's because we want to serve our communities. We want to protect our communities. We want to keep people safe, whether it's from somebody else or from themselves. We want people to remain safe, of course. And officers, too, are susceptible to things like bipolar or depression or post-traumatic stress. We see it all the time. So no one is immune to mental illness, and we recognize that as well. There are appropriate places for treatment, and we would much rather people who need mental health treatment be in the mental health system than in the criminal justice system. Rebecca, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for just helping us to understand. It's really necessary and appreciated. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Please, now is your opportunity. Wherever you downloaded this podcast, give us as many stars as humanly possible. Use your words and write us a nice review. Share us on social media. Email us to your friends. Help us go viral. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, simply by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We will see everybody next week. You've been listening to the Psych Central podcast. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, psychcentral.com offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more. Please visit us today at psychcentral.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email show at psychcentral.com. Thank you for listening, and please share widely.
There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.